0: Hi folks, Mike Avila here with a brand new installment of Sci-Fi Wires Behind the Panel, the podcast that celebrates comics and the people who create. Our show will sound a little different for a while because we're following the stay-at-home plan, so instead of being in a recording studio, I'm hunkered down in my home office, surrounded by all my wonderful toys. Our guest today is probably best known by comics fans for co-creating the groundbreaking teen hero, Kamala Khan, better known as Ms. Marvel. But that's just one part of G. Willow Wilson's story. Along with writing Kamala's adventures for five years, she's also launched creator create her own books for Dark Horse, tackled Wonder Woman for DC, and written the acclaimed novel, The Bird King. She's about to launch a new title for DC, The Dreaming, Waking Hours, a book that's part of the Sandman universe, which means the world to her. However, that book's launch, like just about everything else these days, is up in the air. But for now, Sit back and enjoy my conversation with G. Willow Wilson. You're out in the Pacific Northwest. How's everybody holding up there?
1: I think since the Seattle area saw one of the earliest outbreaks, people here have been preparing, I think, in a way that people outside of the hotspots maybe started to do a little bit later. You know, my kids have been out of school now for over three weeks. It's so funny with kids. It's like the complete breakdown of law and order. Once they realize that, number one, you're not as smart as their teachers, and it's been a long time since you did fourth grade math. <laughs> Number two, everybody's stuck in the same house. You could tell them something two or three times and it's still like, what do you mean? I can't come into this room. But I think one of the encouraging things about living in the Seattle area is because we have been observing these protocols for like a week or two longer than a lot of other places, we're starting to see that flattened curve a little bit that people are talking about. I mean, you know, like all of us obsessively watch these numbers and Seattle, like everywhere else is still getting new cases and unfortunately deaths, but you're starting to see that, hey, these social distancing measures are paying off. So I think that's the good news. This is one of these moments where we all have to pull together and think as a community. And if we do that, then we can save lives and hopefully get everything back on track It's a weird time. I know we keep saying this, but I think for everybody, you kind of realize who you really are when kind of the supports of that daily routine, that daily structure, and all of those things are kind of taken away. And how you relate to the people in your household when all of those bustling, you know, like errands and school and all of this are kind of gone. It's been, I think, a learning experience as well. How has the pandemic impacted your schedule for the rest of 2020? I'm kind of one of the lucky ones in that my schedule has not been that massively impacted. There's a couple of smaller projects that are kind of passion projects I was really looking forward to doing that'll have to be put on hold. But the people that I really worry about and I think we really need to support are the ones who are working in independent publishers, smaller publishers who do not have that kind of leeway for putting projects on hold for months and months. I think those smaller publishers, some of whom are doing really dynamic, interesting new work, are sadly going to be the ones who really feel the impact of this. And, uh, you know, I think that's why it's important now for us to pull together as a community and support the people who who don't have that bandwidth, you know, who don't have that cushion. How does it impact Invisible
0: Kingdom, your book for Dark Horse? Because they're a little bit larger than most independent publishers, but it's a creator own book. So has that been impacted at all in the schedule that you have for it?
1: I don't think anything is clear yet. I assume that like everything, the schedule is going to end up getting pushed back But I think one of the most frustrating things for me and for everybody right now is that everybody's kind of working on the fly. There's no real set schedule. A lot of the questions I think that fans and readers and retailers have are the same questions that creators have as well. And the fact of the matter is, is that people are getting inventive. You know, there've been a lot of different timelines thrown around about when things could start coming out again. But ultimately it depends on what the long-term prognosis of the country is. When are we gonna see these shelter-in-place orders begin to be relaxed? When are the supply chains going to start up again? Of course, every time some kind of disruption happens in the supply chain, the question of digital gets raised again. How does this play into the digital market? Is there a difference between the digital market and the traditional comic book market? So these are questions I think that nobody really has answers to yet. And we're all going to be finding out kind of together, what's the timeline like, and how is it going to impact different books?
0: The Invisible Kingdom, I'm curious what your elevator pitch was for that book to Karen Berger.
1: I think it was Space Nun Uprising.
0: That's a great (laughs) elevator pitch.
1: It was one of those things where I kind of had some extra research on hand from The Bird King, which was the novel that I published last year set in 15th century Spain that has a monk in it. I was doing all of this research about medieval monastic life and various different religious orders, and I ended up using maybe 10% of it in the book. This is kind of how research goes. You cast a wide net, and then you do all of this research over months, and you end up using like five lines. So it was kind of one of those scenarios where I'd done all this research and I found these little religious communities of the late Middle Ages so fascinating. I was like, I want to use this in something, even if I'm not going to use it in this book. And I've been also chucking around in my brain, kind of a space opera centering on a crew of people who work for a giant corporation that delivers consumer goods all over the solar system, which bears absolutely no relation to any real life corporation that might do similar things. <laughs> so I was like, what if I just sort of mashed these two together and uh, made it a really big epic space opera in which the old ways and the new are very much in conflict. And yet the leadership behind these two organizations that seem to be arch enemies are really kind of in cahoots with each other. And that's kind of how Invisible Kingdom came about. It's totally off the wall and wacky. I knew it was something that Karen would love because she likes people to think big and just kind of push the envelope in a lot of different ways. I think space opera is having a moment right now. You're kind of spoiled for choice if your thing is anything having to do with outer space. But I think the thing that really elevates Invisible Kingdom is Christian Ward's art. I mean, the guy is really a genius. He goes straight to colors. I mean, like, I've never heard of anybody do that. He does no kind of inking at all. I mean, he doesn't even really do pencils as such. He'll do layouts and then straight to that color. He works in color from the get-go. His process is so fascinating. The outcome is just brilliant, and it's been amazing working with him. How long do you think that story will, can, should run? We planned it for 15 issues, and that's what we plan to do. I sort of wanted to tell something with a very succinct three-act structure. And in comics, 15 issues is a good way to do that. That's three trades of five issues a piece. When that 15th issue will come out is anybody's guess, <laughs> but that's the plan as of now.
0: You're also writing The Dreaming, uh, Waking House. Was that something that you, when you heard about the Sandman Universe series of titles that you went to DC to pitch them a project or did they approach you?
1: They approached me. I had worked with Chris Conroy, the editor, on Wonder Woman at the beginning of my run, and he left kind of in the middle to go spearhead the new Sandman universe books. And I really wanted to work with him again. I was so hyped that the Sandman universe was getting another look, and that we were going to hear more stories told in that universe. I was a huge goth as a teenager, and so the original Sandman run was a big part of my sort of personal mythos as a really gothy teen. But at that point, my plate was quite full. So it was after I'd been on Wonder Woman for about a year that Chris was like, hey, we are looking to spin off a couple of the Sandman books. And Cy Spurrier, who'd been doing such an amazing job writing the dreaming up to that point, really wanted to do the Hellblazer book, which left the dreaming kind of open. And did I want to, at some point, hop off Wonder Woman and come to the Sandman office? And I was like, yes, (laughs) you don't have to ask me twice. I'm not going to pretend that I'm going to think about it. And it probably seems strange to make that kind of lateral move to a lot of people who would think, why would you leave Wonder Woman for literally any other book of any kind? But, you know, as much as I loved Wonder Woman, two books a month, plus my own novel, plus an indie book, plus I was on tour, was kind of a lot. And I was looking to kind of clear my plate in 2020 and do fewer things, hopefully better. (laughs) That was my theme for this year. That seemed like, okay, this is the sign. Shift down to a book that comes out once a month. Focus on doing fewer things in 2020 and kind of take stock. I had no idea that, of course, 2020 was going to deal us this unbelievable blow in which everybody is kind of taking stock of their lives. And I have to say that Nick's art is on a level that just gives me chills even to think about. So I'm really excited for people to see this book.
0: We'll be right back with more from G. Willow Wilson after these short messages. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome back to Behind the Panel. Let's continue my conversation with G. Willow Wilson. You've talked about this in the essay you wrote for the DC Comics blog. You talked about the challenge that a writer faces when they try to add something new to an existing franchise while I personally think your run was excellent, it sounded like that was a real challenge for you to keep coming up with something that you felt was fresh enough to add to it. How much did that play into the decision to go from the Wonder Woman office, as you called it, over to the Dreaming?
1: You know, that was kind of part of it. I was having a ton of fun on Wonder Woman. And yet at the same time, I felt like, I will admit this to you because we're living in the end times. (laughs) I felt like I really wasn't hitting the high notes. I think part of it was I kind of went into it with this feeling of intimidation. This is Wonder Woman. It's really easy to get in your head, I think, when you're handed a really iconic character who's been written by the best minds in the business, drawn by the most brilliant artists in the business, and has been around for 80 years. And you're like, it's not just one pair of big shoes, it's like 50 pairs of big shoes that you kind of have to fill. And I think I kind of tried to do this very big, somber, epic, like gods and monsters series when what I think I do well and what I'm most comfortable in are smaller, quirkier, funnier, more personal stories. I think I could have done that, but I was like, I'm going to prove to myself that I can do like the big somber epic. Everything is majestic. I'm going to hit that tone. And I don't think I really got there. And it was sort of frustrating to me because I was like, I don't feel like this is my best work. I feel like it's somehow not hitting those high notes. I think if you want to get better, you kind of always have to be your own worst critic and say, okay, this is just something I do kind of as a type A person too. It was like, how have I failed today? And so, you know, it's easy to look back at your own work and say, okay, I should have done this better. This needed to be tweaked. This really didn't get there. I loved working on that book. And I especially love that relationship between Steve and Diana because it's so multifaceted. It's got to be tough to be in a relationship like that. We are like, here I am. I'm a human being. I've got human flaws. I'm going to age and get old and my hair is going to fall out. And yet I'm in love with this semi-immortal Amazon who in my eyes anyway, is kind of perfect. That's got to be really tough. And you have to, I think, be really comfortable with yourself as a person to be in a relationship where there's that kind of power dynamic. But Steve gets there. I think that's really, really interesting about him as a character. And that's why I spent so much time with them and their dynamic in the series. But, you know, yeah, at the same time, the bar is really high with characters like that. And I think no matter what you do, you'll always be comparing yourself to the greats. Because this is a character who has outlived a lot of people, (laughs) you know, like this is a character who, if they were a real life person alive today, would be collecting social security. That's longevity. Not a lot of characters get to be that age. Very true. And it's very different challenges. Creating a new character really has to hit the ground running. You have to do a ton of world building. You have to have a lot of things figured out before you even put your pen to the page versus an established character who is deeply beloved, for whom not only has world building been going on for decades, but there are multiple continuities and different things happening in different timelines. And it's two very distinct challenges. It's almost like working in an entirely different medium, because while the nuts and bolts are the same, the storytelling is quite different when you're doing a totally new character versus an established character who's internationally known and loved. Self-contained stories, maxi-series, somewhat out of continuity, is that more
0: fulfilling for you and is that something that you'll look to do more of in the future where you do a standalone arcs, whether it's with an established character, like a Wonder Woman or somebody in Marvel, is that a good way for you to maximize your creativity with some of these characters?
1: I think it really depends on the series and on the character. I think you can get into trouble when you don't realize, okay, my tenure on this book needs to be over it's sort of easy to get to a place where you're kind of spinning your wheels and you don't really realize it. And I think a good way to do that is to have a set endpoint. But on the other hand, you can also have the opposite reversal of fortune where, you know, like for something like with Ms. Marvel, I had a three-issue exit strategy because I assumed that we would get maybe 10 issues, maybe 12, and I ended up writing 60. It really depends. And a lot has to do with, in monthly comics in any case, the readership and are they responding to these characters? Do they love of this story? Are they dressing up as these people? Am I seeing photos of them at cons? It really kind of depends on a lot of factors. And I think that's what makes comics pretty unique as a medium, because it is so collaborative. And because you are so close to the readership, because it is ongoing, it's almost more like writing a TV series. You kind of have to figure out season to season, what's working, what's not working. And I think you can get really, really good storytelling out of that kind of anthology series model where it's like, okay, yeah, we're going to do one season or one set of 12 issues that is going to tell a distinct story. And then we wrap that up and it's done. So that gives you a good sense of pacing where you don't have to worry about stringing it out over two years or three years. You can say, okay, I have an endpoint. And that makes it structurally quite sound because then you know, okay, I know what needs to go here. We're in the second act. I know what needs to happen. Whereas if you have the really long game stories, you kind of have to think about really spooling out that tension and finding little mini arcs within the bigger arcs. So it's, it's a very different way of telling stories. Once we get to the
0: other side of this, how different do you envision seeing the comic convention circuit
1: I mean, I cannot imagine the convention circuit disappearing because it's such a huge part, I think, of the community for a lot of people. It's a place to go and meet other fans. It's a place to meet your peers. They've just been growing and growing, it seems like, exponentially over the years. I remember the first Emerald City I did here in Seattle was tiny. You could walk across the entire floor in like five minutes and, uh, you know, not be throwing elbows just to get there. Whereas now it's massive and book publishers have a presence there television studios have a presence there. So I cannot imagine that going away because I really do think that community element means a lot to a lot of people. I think a lot of people would be really sad to see that go. Is it going to look the same? Is it going to be packed convention centers where you are definitely over fire code? And uh, you know if <laughs> if something bad happened, you'd be hard pressed to get out in a timely fashion. I don't know. I think people are going to be thinking a lot more about things like crowding and the dynamics of flow or Across those giant floors and how to keep people moving and how to maintain distance. Looking back, it really does seem like we were kind of in a golden age and didn't know it. And now that that's come to an end, it's easy to see like, wow, that was a high watermark. Will it look like that again? I hope so, but it's probably not going to be the same. I'm glad it's not my job to figure that out because the logistics of that, I'm sure are going to be a real challenge for people organizing large events of any kind going forward. I want to ask you a much more fun question. Your Twitter feed is endlessly fascinating
0: to me because it's this great mix of science, politics, comics, and baking. Yep. I'm probably (laughs) going to get trashed for this online. I had no idea what a Dutch baby was.
1: (laughs) You know, I have to say, we joke about picking your job in the apocalypse and what would you be doing? And I did not see Immortan Joe of Apocalypse desserts on my bingo card, but apparently that's my role now. (laughs) You know, I think this started because I was like a lot of people going through my pantry and being like, what can I cook to stress eat right now? And what I had on hand were kind of like eggs and a little bit of milk and some flour. And I was like, oh, it would be really easy to make a Dutch baby because these are basically just kind of very fluffy pancakes that you make by throwing four ingredients in a blender. So they're really easy to do. Just kind of stick them in the oven for 15 minutes and you have this very fancy looking like pseudo souffle type of dessert. And so I made one and I was like, wow, this is really good. That kind of really hits the spot of kind of stress baking. And so I joked about it online. And then a few days later, I made another one and I mentioned it and people started sending me theirs. They were like, oh my gosh, I can just sort of like smell it through the screen. You know, that smell of beautiful baking <laughs> vanilla e dessert. So people just started posting these pictures on Twitter and I started retweeting them. And all of a sudden it was like, oh my God, I have to stop retweeting Dutch babies because people are tweeting me like 10 an hour. People have started to get really creative. A guy tweeted me one today that was like a savory Dutch baby. It was basically a puffy pizza, which I thought was really good. And then Kelly Sue tweeted this one that was like, you could put it right now in a cookbook and it would not be out of place. It was just superb. Everything was like fluffed and beautiful. What have you been reading when you've had some free time away from
0: work and parenting and homeschooling and all that?
1: I've been loving the new Hellblazer series that Cy has been writing. It's great to see John Constantine back in action. I think it hits the exact right note of surreal, interesting, funny, like it's got that very london vibe. That's been amazing. Uh, Nalo Huff- Hopkinson series is incredible. I've been doing a lot of going back and rereading a lot of my comfort food books from the before times, (laughs) (laughs) the first few trades of Transmetropolitan recently, because I was like, this this is on point as I remember it, because it feels like it's just kind of happening right now. It feels like very much a documentary. My eternal comfort food, which anybody who's ever talked to me gets sick of me talking about, is Peter Milligan and Chris Bacallo's Shade the Changing Man from really early Vertigo. I love that series. Whenever I get sad, I go back and read that. I've been reading the OG Sandman, the Neil Gaiman run. For me, as for a lot of people, this period of time has been about the things that feel comforting. It puts you in the headspace that you were in the first time that you read it. It's like hitting a rewind button on your own mental space and saying, okay, yeah, I remember the good times. The recent DC
0: Marvel crossover hashtag that was on Twitter. (laughs) So many people having some fun. As a fan, what crossover of those two companies would you want to see and which creative team?
1: Oh, man. There's so many to choose from. Every time I thought I had a good idea, somebody would be like, oh, this and this. And I'd say, oh yeah, that's the one. Um, the Wonder Woman, Captain Marvel crossover, I think it would be fantastic. It'd be so interesting to see Spider-Man set loose in the DC universe. There's a story waiting to be written about Peter Parker as a photojournalist and Clark Kent as a print journalist trying to get the same story. That's good. There's some hilarity there to be had. Who
0: writes and who draws?
1: Those are dangerous questions (laughs) um oh man you know i've been looking through nicola scott's artwork a ton recently i would love to see her back on you know like a really big superhero book who else i mean you're like writing that's a bad question to ask me because like selfishly i would love to write that but um i think matt would destroy that or Kelly Sue I think Gail Simone would be great it would really depend on whether you wanted to make it something slapstick and funny and kind of tongue-in-cheek or if you wanted to be like yes this is like a deconstruction of journalism today and sort of reflection on the times we live in so it really would just depend on what kind of book you wanted to make that story it's a shame that that doesn't exist because that would be awesome
0: many thanks to G Willow Wilson for talking with us today Time now for my friendly reminder that we have a lot more Behind the Panel podcasts for you. All you have to do to listen to them is subscribe from wherever you grab this episode from. Simple. Also, head to YouTube and subscribe to the Sci Fi Wire channel for great comic book videos. And don't forget about my weekly column at SciFiWire.com. Thanks to my Behind the Panel podcast team, executive producer Matt Romano, producer, composer, and editor Paul Terry and mixer and masterer, Dave Draper. I'm your host, Mike Avalon. On our next episode, I'm talking to the guy who's been crushing it on The Flash for years, Mr. Josh Williamson. Till then, stay safe, stay home, and keep reading.